Hello. Greetings. We're glad that you've joined us, and we're glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, for Disciples Making Disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Today, we're going to begin exploring some mountains we find in Scripture. Mountains have fascinated, inspired, and terrified humans as long as humans have been looking at them and living in their midst. They tower above humanity. And if you happen to have lived near mountains, or have traveled in areas where there are a lot of mountains, you very quickly feel very small. And you can see the majesty of the creation, and of the greatness of the God who made them. <clears throat> a lot of times in the ancient world, sacredness was associated with mountains. Which makes sense. If you look at some kind of the divine as something that's above, mountains are the closest way to get to the above. So you can climb up and you're higher up than you were. Uh, in Egypt, the pyramids were built, it is believed, to help the soul of the Pharaoh ascend to the heavens. In Israel, Canaanites and Israelites made offerings to Yahweh, or other gods, on what are called the Bamot, or the high places. And those are mountains or hills or perhaps the highest geological, geographical feature on the land. In Deuteronomy 12, 2, 1 Kings 3, 2 through 3, Solomon does it. And chapter 14, verses 22 through 24. When it comes to Israel, mountains are very important in shape and define its land. Because Israel and its neighbors uh, exist in the, uh, all around, with mountains all around them. Um, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea are part of what's called the Great Rift Valley and feature some of the lowest elevations on planet Earth. And when you go east into the area of Jordan, the Transjordan area, is very mountainous, very high up, and then it's, it's desert. Judah and Ephraim are defined by the hill country that arise to the west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Um, the Anti-Lebanon Mountains uh, define the northwest boundary of Israel. It also explains why the Phoenicians were seafarers. They were so close to the sea that the Phoenicians had just enough room for their cities and no room for growing crops. And that is why they had to go and, and to trade for much of their goods. And so the Israelites live near or on mountains. At any point in Israel that you're in, you can look and see mountains. And this landscape is reflected in Israel's devotional literature. And many times in the Psalms, in Psalm 29, 42, 89, 133, in Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, Yahweh is praised for his strength and power over mountains and valleys and deserts of the land. And when we look at biblical history, a lot of the events that take place involve mountains. Very much on top of mountains, or uh, mountains become powerful metaphors. So, Mount Moriah, also known as Mount Zion, is where Abraham will offer Isaac, David will make a sacrifice, Solomon will build the first temple, the second temple will also later be built. Genesis 22, 2 Chronicles 3, Ezra chapter 3. And we'll continue on and even into the New Covenant. Mount Sinai, or Horeb, is where Yahweh speaks with Moses. The law is given. And where Elijah will take refuge. Exodus 3 and 4, 19 and 20, and 1 Kings 19. There's Mount Hor and Nebo, where Aaron and Moses die. 
respectively. And on Nebo, Moses looks and sees Canaan in the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 34. On Mount Ebal and Gerizim, the law was read in Joshua 8. The curses from Mount Ebal and the blessings from Mount Gerizim. On Mount Tabor, Israel will defeat Sisera and the Canaanites, and perhaps Jesus is transfigured there in Judges 4 and 5 and Luke chapter 9. On Mount Carmel, Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Mount of Olives is where Yahweh would stand on the day of judgment. Jesus would pray and will descend in Zechariah 14, Matthew 26, and Acts chapter 1. Of course, Mount Golgotha, or Calvary, the hill upon which Jesus was crucified in Matthew 27. So today, let us explore in greater detail Mount Sinai. Where could Mount Sinai be? What happened there, and what's its significance in Scripture? And what lessons can we gain from Sinai and Israel's experiences there? When you hear Mount Sinai, a lot of times the thought immediately goes to, oh, Mount Sinai, mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, which would make sense, right? Because the Sinai Peninsula's name, the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, that has been the traditional site. Uh, Jebel Musa, in fact, Jebel Mountain Musa, Moses, Mountain of Moses, on the Sinai Peninsula, modern-day Egypt. According to Wikipedia, that's 7,402 feet high. Uh, the Bedouin suggested that it was the place where God appeared to Israel. There's some Jewish claims about it as well, even before Jesus' day. Uh, some early Christians, though, thought it was nearby Mount Serbel, which is 6,730 feet, uh, a little bit lower. But uh, based on the fact that Josephus would claim that Sinai was the tallest mountain in its area, a lot of people thought it's Mount Catherine, the main famous by the monastery, because it is 8,550 feet and also nearby. Regardless, by about the third century of our era, there was agreement that it was Jebel Musa. And, and you know, a lot of times traditional places are accurate, and so that should be given some weight. And it's a feasible distance from uh, the, uh, the Red Sea if we're looking at the, the Gulf of Suez. A uh, couple difficulties, though, with it. The main difficulty is that what we consider the Sinai Peninsula uh, was uh, pretty much always considered part of Egypt. Uh, Egypt uh, had interests in the, in the mines and turquoise and other things in Sinai. And so to imagine that they would have crossed over into the Sinai Peninsula and there have been free from Egyptian influence and Egyptian control is highly speculative. And uh, it's not volcanic and it doesn't seem to have some of the other markers that are mentioned there in the text. There are other sites that are considered. Uh, some have considered some sites in modern-day Jordan. But perhaps the strongest claim uh, would come from an Arabian site called Jabal al-Laws in modern-day Saudi Arabia. It is, according to Wikipedia, 8,460 feet high. And it's a compelling-looking mountain, high over historical Midian. And that's one of its great strengths. Since in, it's in Midian that Exodus chapter 2 says that Moses sojourned, and where he had been watching the the, the sheep of, of Jethro. Um, the idea that he would have crossed into Sinai and come back around um, the Gulf of Aqaba there is a, a very long way indeed. Um, it's in Arabia, where Paul in Galatians 4, 24-25 directly uh, attests that uh, uh, Sinai is. Now it is true that the 
Roman idea of Arabia Petraea included what we call the Sinai Peninsula. But in Galatians 4, as we're going to see, Paul directly associates Sinai with Hagar and Ishmael and the Arabs, which would would make sense in an area that is part of modern-day Saudi Arabia and part of historical Midian uh, and area of Ishmaelite control. And it is very safely outside of Egyptian territory. But it isn't a lot of traditional attestation of that place, and it is a longer distance from Egypt if we're looking at the crossing of uh, the Gulf of Suez as opposed to the Gulf of Aqaba. And so, again, there's all these different opportunities. We're going to proceed on the basis of the assumption that Jabal Laws is the best fit. Um, it, it's hard to say that. We think, well, it's called the Sinai Peninsula. We, we call that there now because of the association with Sinai. It's called Mafkat back in the day, the land of turquoise. And Egypt had a lot of prevailing interests there. And so that would not have been an area where the Israelites would have been comfortable um, and out of the hand of, out of the reach of Pharaoh. Moses was in Midian, and Jethro was acquainted with Yahweh. And Israelite origin stories have much greater focus on family, God and family connection to the Negev and to the southeast um, than it does in this part of of, the si- uh, of what we call today the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, its peak is burnt, and its location is a bit further than traditional Sinai, but it's not out of the way of traditional candidate, other candidates, and it maintains continuity with Israel and Midian. Regardless, we can know for certain that Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, would be in the desert waste east of Lower Egypt and south of Canaan. So Sinai, where did that word come from? Sinai uh, is perhaps related to Sin, which is the name of the moon god. Horeb may refer to the idea of sun or glowing heat. And maybe the name it was given that name for different sides. The one side faces the sun, the other the moon. Uh, in the southern Sinai Peninsula, around traditional Sinai, they found a lot of archaeological evidence of uh, the worship of the moon divinity. Um, uh, Antoninus Martyr was testifying that pagans were doing uh, those same ceremonies in that same area as late as the 6th century of our own era, uh, just before the time of uh, Islam. Uh, Albright thought that uh, Sinai was named because of the wilderness of sin. Rabbinic sources would say that it actually involves a jealousy of the nations for Israel's God and revelation. But nevertheless, Sinai is the mountain of God, as it is described in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 and 1 Kings 19 and verse 8. And it's always considered very special as a mountain of God, where Yahweh spoke to Israel, revealed his glory to Moses, even when Yahweh made his name to dwell in Zion. And so we first see mention of Sinai, Horeb. Some people, very few people, think that those are different mountains, but we're going to see that the same mountain is referred to with both terms, which is not unsurprising. They could refer to different elements of the same mountain, different rocky outcrops of it, but regardless, it's the same uh, mountain. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is in the wilderness watching the sheep of his uh, father-in-law Jethro, and he led his flock and came to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there an angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. As it continues, this, uh, Mo, Yahweh there calls Moses to be the agent means by which he's going to deliver his people Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And in fact, in the, the great sign in verse 12, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. And so there is a place where Moses is commissioned. Even though Moses doesn't want to, Moses in the end commission, he goes to Egypt. And so the whole time they're in Egypt, and the plagues, and the death of the firstborn, and uh, the drowning of the army in the sea, and then in chapter 19, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And there Israel camped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The people were going to... This is where God was going to make a covenant with Israel and, and bring them in to be his covenant people. It was his purpose, as he says, beginning in verse 3... Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he tells them that they are to be set apart for on the third day, he is going to come in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak to you, and you may also believe you forever. And so, it would be that they have all come, and on that day, in verse 16, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. They all stood on Sinai, and you had all the sound, and this grew louder, and more terrifying to the people. And the people not to touch the mountain, but they came near to it, and then God spoke the words, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In chapter 20, he would go on to give the Ten Commandments. At which point, the Israelites were terribly afraid of the thunder, and the flash of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. In verse 18, and they no longer wanted God to speak to them directly, they wanted to receive the law through Moses. And so Moses was sent up for 40 days and would receive the law, the specifications of the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and all such things in Exodus 20.18 through 31.18, in Deuteronomy 18.16, Malachi 4.4, Acts 7, and verse 38. While Moses is up there, in Exodus 32 we read that the people feel like that he is gone, and they don't know what happened to him, and so they ask Aaron to make them gods that they can serve. And Aaron gathers all their gold and makes the golden calf, and says, Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God tells Moses what's going on. Moses comes down. He tells them how they have sinned, a great sin. He smashes the tablets that God had given him with the covenant, uh, he takes their idol and grinds it down to powder and puts it in their water supply so they have to drink it. He calls, asks who is on uh, the Lord's side. 
and the Levites come to him and he tells the Levites to go and to kill his companion and brother and neighbor and they killed about 3,000 men of the people in verse 28 and God will forgive Israel of this sin after great penance by God from, from Moses and intercession by Moses uh, but uh, there's a pattern that's been set and in chapter 33 God says they're going to have to leave Sinai that they have come to the mountain of God and they have served an idol but before they leave we have the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus and the first ten chapters of Numbers and it's a whole year period almost uh, they will observe the, the second Passover in Numbers just before they depart and during that time they will build the tabernacle and they will install Aaron and his sons as priests and Moses will receive the full law from God meeting him in the tent of meeting and then finally after almost a year they are given their marching orders and they pick up and they depart from Sinai so it's at Sinai or Horeb over this year period almost that Israel goes from being an enslaved nation to the people of Yahweh a covenant having been cut between them a tabernacle priesthood established and after this point we hear nothing of Sinai Moses will recount their time in Sinai just before they enter the land but they've left it and they don't go back to it the days of the judges they do not go back to it the days of Saul and David and Solomon they do not go back to it in fact, the next time we hear of Sinai is in 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah, the prophet of God, is terribly afraid of the hot anger of Jezebel the queen. And so he runs for his life. He comes to the edge of Judah in Beersheba, leaves his servant there. He goes in the wilderness and desires to die, but an angel touches him and gives him food to rise and eat, and on the basis of that food, he was able to travel and reach Horeb, the Mount of God, in verse 8. In verse 9, he finds a cave in the Mount of God, and the word of Yahweh comes to him, asking him why he's doing what he's doing there. And he says, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He is told to go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. Yahweh passed by with a strong wind, but Yahweh was not in the wind. Then there will be an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And there was a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. But after the fire, there is a sound of a low whisper, a thin silence. And that is when Elijah knows Yahweh is there. And there again declares that he alone is left, but Yahweh tells him, Go! Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's an interesting contrast here, that when Yahweh appeared to all Israel, he appeared in Sinai in wind, earthquake, and fire. 
but now he is in the thin silence before Elijah. And in this moment of despair, Elijah goes all the way back to Horeb. And it's the only time in the Bible anybody does anything of the sort. Yahweh meets him there, but not as he did before. It's not time to come in earthquake, wind, and fire, but in the thin silence. And he sends him back. He tells him to go back. Elijah may want to take refuge in Sinai or Horeb, but he's told to go back. Because that is not for Israel at this time. And that is all we hear about Sinai in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Sinai will have a, a different function. In Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will speak about Mount Sinai. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The whole point that, he, that, that Paul is trying to say here is, is looking at the two mountains, the two covenants. Sinai is the old covenant with Israel, which now is being seen as Hagar. As the as the as the as the slave woman and the child born to slavery, and Zion is the Jerusalem above, which is Sarah, and and the child, the free woman, and the child of the promise, Isaac, and that yes, the the slave woman's child persecutes the free woman's child, but guess what? The slave woman's child is cast out, and so we can definitely see old new contrast, and Sinai is relegated absolutely to the old. The Hebrew author alludes to Sinai. He doesn't come out and say Sinai, but he alludes to Sinai in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If any, even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we can see that contrast there. He doesn't call it Sinai, but where did anyone come that was touched, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, and all these sounds begged that no further message be spoken to them? It's, the, it's a description of what we just saw there in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. So it's Sinai 
and all of the hearers of the Hebrew author would have known that. And it's being compared to Zion. We have not come to that where there is fear, where there is apprehension, where it could not be fulfilled. Instead, we as Christians have come to Zion and in the presence of the living God. In Revelation 4, 5, and 11, 19, there is a voice that comes from the throne with, with thunders and lightnings and earthquakes. And, and the scene in the heavenly temple uh, where, that, where that happened as well are both intentionally reminiscent of God's presence on Sinai. And there, it, again, it's elusive, as, as we see so often in Revelation, where these terms are being used to allude to Sinai, oh, the presence of God, and it's a t- it's, it can be a terrifying thing, but it also is a reverential thing. And so it is not nearly as, quote-unquote, negative as perhaps the references we've seen here in Galatians 4 and in Hebrews chapter 12. And there's an even more subtle comparison or contrast being made in Acts chapter 2 which is the the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost was the traditional anniversary of God giving Israel the law on Sinai, whether or not they actually received the law exactly 50 days after the Passover or not. Uh, that's the traditional understanding. And there's a lot of parallels between Peter and the apostles receiving the gift of the Spirit and preaching the gospel, and around 3,000 were baptized and saved through the Spirit of life. And Sinai, the law was given, a burden that could not be borne, uh, the letter which killed, and about 3,000 were killed on account of the disobedience in the matter of the golden calf. And so we can see kind of what Paul's, an illustration of what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3, how the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is what we see about Mount Sinai and Horeb in Scripture. So what's going on there? Well, it's a mountain of God, and it's in the desert wilderness. It's a place where God brings Israel to himself, where he makes a covenant. He becomes their God, and they become his people, and there he gives them the law. But interestingly, once Israel leaves Sinai, it's supposed to be a complete departure. They're not to return. Yes, Elijah returns for a moment. He's in distress, and he goes there. But it's not to be a refuge for him. He's sent back. And it, it, it leads to an interesting question. Should Elijah have gone at all? I don't know if it's clear that the text comes to that conclusion. If this is something where God is accommodating him in his weakness, whether this is something commended by God, because he's sent right back. And so you're not going to find solace at Sinai or at Horeb for what you're looking for. In the New Testament, as we've seen, Sinai and Horeb is primarily referred to or alluded to in terms of a contrast between the Old and the New Covenant. We see that in Acts 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, in Hebrews 12. And it's best seen what Paul says in Galatians. And it's interesting that in the same letter, because Paul has earlier in Galatians, in verse chapter, verse, chapter 1 verse 17, after being converted, went to Arabia. And in chapter 3, verse 30, 24, he says, The law is the pedagogos, the tutor or schoolmaster, lead us to Christ. And then he comes up with this allegory of Sinai uh, and Jerusalem. And Sinai is in Arabia as Hagar and the child of bondage. Now, it's, it's to be admitted, again, Arabia Petraea is a very long and wide country. Uh, it's what's being con- controlled by the Nabataean king, which is true of Damascus all the way down to Sinai. Uh, tr- the traditional site and uh, Jabal laws. And so Paul could have been very far away from Sinai and still in Arabia. But there's this interesting convergence and association there, isn't it? When Paul, received, when Paul was converted, he had to go out to Arabia to receive instruction, introductory guidance to the faith. 
He teaches Galatians how the law was a tutor to guide us into faith in the Christ, and that Sinai and Arabia stands for the law and that covenant. Because Israel was out at Sinai, received the law and covenant there, and left not to return. And maybe Paul went out to Arabia to receive instruction about Jesus, and left not to return. And so all of that's pointing us to the inevitable conclusion that maybe Christians are to be tutored in the law. There's a lot we can gain from what we can read in the law. But we also need to leave Sinai, that old covenant, and not to return. And so there, there's a very real sense in which we have to begin at Sinai or Horeb in a spiritual sense. We can look at the idea of the Exodus in terms of the Christian life. We need to come out of Egypt. In this sense, Egypt is the world. And we need to head toward Canaan, which is the promised land of rest. Hebrews 4, 1 John 2. And as we leave the Egypt of the world... When we come into the wilderness, we come to Sinai Horeb, the place where we declare that God is our God and that God, we are his people. We receive basic instruction about how to serve God in Christ. That elementary, basic milk of the word in 1 Peter 2 and verse 2. That elementary instruction that is to be the, the beginnings of our faith and the foundation of our faith in Hebrews 5, 12 through 6, 4. Just as Israel before us, we might be awed and afraid based on the things that we see and experience. And that is designed to lead us to trust and revere God. But, as we can see what the Hebrew author says there, Hebrews chapter 5, that, that we need to grow in the faith. That there is a time where we need to go beyond the elementary principles and move on to maturity. In essence, we need to leave Sinai Horeb. And we can't, we we aren't to return to it because Sinai might be the mountain of God, but it's not in the Promised Land. In the sense that Paul is using Galatians, it's very true. We have a lot to learn from Israel according to the flesh. In First Corinthians ten, Paul provides this whole story as as a sense of a Christianizes the story no less and tells the Christians of Corinth to learn from them and not to participate in idolatry. Uh, Romans 15.3, we, we, we gain encouragement from the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15-17, uh, that the scriptures equip us to every good work. But we're not to impose its precepts and doctrines without any warrant from the New Testament. Just because it was done in the Old Testament doesn't mean that we should do it in the New Covenant. And that's what's stressed in Colossians 2, Hebrews 7 through 9. And of course what Paul is stressing in Galatians, because the Galatians are in danger of going back and imposing elements of the Old Covenant in the New. That we must maintain confidence and strength in the fundamental doctrines of the faith. There may be times we revisit them at times, and we are encouraged them at times again. But we need to leave that Sinai and press on to greater maturity in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. So that's what we see about Mount Sinai and Horeb, the mountain of God. Yahweh brought Israel there, gave them the law, made a covenant, established a relationship. But Israel would never return, which is not something true of most of the other mountains in Scripture. Elijah would go there, but he was sent back. And so as Israel received the law and the covenant at Sinai but departed, we do well to understand that we must depart from the ways of Israel, and we must grow to maturity ourselves. And so we do well to learn of God at Sinai, and then go forth and press on in our faith to the promised land. And thank you for joining us and hope that you've been encouraged by our conversation. If you have any questions or comments about uh, about Sinai or maybe like talk about how to become a Christian or 
just need to talk or have a prayer request, if there's any way that I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. It's www.deverbovitae.com. And maybe you'd like to learn more or visit us at the Venture Church of Christ. Please find out more about us. You can find us out about us online at venturechurchchrist.org. Uh, we're also on many forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.